0: I am Comedian Nato Green. This is my podcast. It is a production of 3200 Stories, the digital venue of the San Francisco Jewish Community Center. Uh, If you want to see me doing live stand-up comedy, you can come see me every Friday night at the Hemlock Tavern in San Francisco with the business. Uh, Other dates, at my website, natogreen.com, or uh, hit me up on Twitter, at natogreen. Today, my guest is Vernon Reed. Uh, Vernon Reed is most known as the guitarist from the band Living Color. He is one of the founders of the Black Rock Coalition. Um, I have been a fan of Living Color since high school, uh, and I met Vernon through W. Kamau Bell. They have a podcast together, have had, I'm not sure, uh, called The Field Negro Guide to Arts and Culture. Uh, a few years ago, Living Color was on tour in San Francisco, and I went to the show with Kamau, and then afterwards, the three of us went to Sparky's Diner, uh, on Church Street in the Castro and stayed up talking until four in the morning. And uh, then when I was in New York writing for Kamau's TV show, Vernon had done the theme music and we hung out a lot around the set of the show. And he's just one of my, one of the all-time great conversationalists, most interesting people I've ever met. And so I'm really excited to have had this conversation with him. And I hope you enjoy it too. Take it. Vernon Reed. Uh, the last time I saw you and if you don't want to talk about, it, I understand. But the uh, y- you were in a it, reflecting on the loss of your mentor uh, 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 Shannon.
1: Yeah, Ronald uh, Shannon Jackson. Yeah,
0: and um, and so I I just wanted to hear you talk more about about that history and that relationship.
1: Well, he's um, he's like one of these people I can't overstate his importance. You know, it's like he is the first. Mentor, I mean, he was the first musician, band leader to really take me seriously. I mean, he was the first one that was in a position to, to you know, the so first time I flew on an airplane was because I was working with him. Like I, in 1980, I flew to the Netherlands to play the North Sea Jazz Festival with him. And uh, it was a a life-altering experience. So working with him, playing his music, being in his band, getting yelled at by him, I mean, uh, i changed the direction of my life, I mean, in a fundamental way.
0: And how old were you when you met him?
1: I was, um, I was, I was like in my late teens. I was, um... Jeez, I—I I, when I first heard him, I must have been nineteen years old. When I, uh, Melvin Gibbs, um, the bass player, I mean, most known for playing in Rollins' band. Um, and we—he and I are buddies that go way back. And um, and he said, "Man, you got to." He called me and he said, "There's this um, uh, drummer I'm playing with that you got to hear." And and that's how I wound up. I wound up hooking up with him.
0: Roland Shannon Jackson is is playing jazz, right? It's, it's he's like- playing
1: he's playing jazz, but he's playing jazz. He's playing blues. He's playing he's playing a kind of jazz, very influenced by his fellow Fort Worth, Texas um, musician, Ornette Coleman. And Ornette Coleman is is uh, is an icon of American music and. Um, Forged a kind of brand new language of of a certain type of improvisation called harmonic, which uh, everyone has tried to explain it. Very few people understand it. It's uh, kind of the idea that no part of music, rhythm, harmony, or melody, no single part is subservient to any other. the other. Because the idea generally is that the melody is supreme. And then everything else supports melody, and and I'm probably I'm I'm stating it in the in the in the most coarsest terms. And Ronald uh, legitimately took aspects of Ornette's ideas, uh, the harmonic ideas, and plus that the fact that they both have a very much a blue Texas blues background. Um, I mean, uh, you don't really understand, you can't understand Ornette Coleman's music unless you really understand him partially as a Texas blues honker in his beginnings and how he took, and he took that sideways. And, and Shannon was a, uh, like a blues shuffle, uh, and blues march master. And he took those things and he combined them with African rhythm and, um, and his hard melodic music was really really focused on rhythm different kinds of rhythm and stuff so he he so he was really a disciple uh, like James Bud Omer you know was really a compositional disciple of of Ornette Coleman but he took Ornette's ideas into a, a whole other other area
0: uh and do you in in thinking about your relationship with with Shannon do you feel like uh that part of what was 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 he the first older musician to really take you seriously?
1: I would say so, yeah, definitely. Because other guys, other people I worked with were kind of more or less my age, or more around my age. I mean, they'd have more experience or whatever, but they were dudes who were like maybe a year older. They they weren't weren't really they were my they were in my generation. And Shannon was the first person of the of uh, you know of the generation two generations ahead.
0: It's interesting how you know that like how significant, yeah. how significant it can be to just to to have someone older validate you know come along and say you got something, keep it, it up
1: it, it's 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 vital it's important and, and I think it's um I think we we miss that like where everybody is qualified to speak, and that's that's a valid point. Um, but, you know, experience counts for something. Having gone down a road before someone else counts for something. And, uh, and Shannon, Shannon, I mean, he was, uh, he did everything. I mean, Shannon was hardcore. He was, Shannon was really from the streets. Like, you hear about the street a lot. And Shannon was the, was the real deal. I mean, he was, um, he was an ex junkie. Uh, who got clean. He was a, a, a petty thief at one time. He, do, he had done time in jail. Um, he was a revered drummer. He had a lot. I mean, he worked a lot. He worked with some of the, 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 the biggest names in jazz, you know. He's the only drummer to have worked with, uh, Cecil Taylor, uh, Ornette Coleman, you know. Um, he, he's a, he's a, uh, he worked with betty carter um you know he's a very important cat and he also lost everything and, and rebuilt himself
0: you know and did he uh my guess is that someone who comes from that background doesn't i mean the funny thing about people who are like have a have a. Yeah, he played. I was
1: like, I did mention. you You also mentioned he's like the three pillars of the avant-garde. He worked with Ornette Coleman, Cecil Taylor, and Albert Ayler. The saxophonist Albert Ayler, like he he's like the one cat who's a thread between all three of those.
0: Oh wow! Musicians. A lot of that stuff, personally, like I I like I like the idea of it, but I don't enjoy listening to it. <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> you know what I mean?
1: That's it's a,
0: too it's too heady for me.
1: Well, you know it's it's weird because. I don't know how my listening and hearing evolved to in- incorporate it. It's a very mysterious to me that I enjoy the avant-garde because I grew up listening to pop music. I love pop music. I grew up listening to pop, like listening to Sly and the Family Stone and the Beatles and the Rolling Stones and James Brown and Cool and the Gang, and, you know, uh and... Somewhere around hearing 21st century schizoid man, you know, um, uh, and Robert Fripp and King Crimson, it's like my my hearing started to change, and you know, I was exposed to John Coltrane, and then I was exposed to Eric Dolphy, and then from Eric Dolphy to Ornette Coleman, and from er- Ornette Coleman to Albert Eiler and and Sun Ra, and and then Sun Ra open the doorway to, say, the Art Ensemble of Chicago. And before I knew it, you know, I was enjoying people screaming on saxophones with no apparent melody. But then I would go back and listen to, uh, you know, the, the faces or, or listen, you know, listen to the Eagles or whatever music I liked. There was a clear line for a long time between what was... Above the line, above board, mainstream. And jazz has always played with that. I mean, jazz played show tunes, you know, polka dots and moonbeams, you know, things like that. And then subverted them, inverted them, you know, turned them upside down, turned them around. When the thing that became Living Color started, when Living Color started was 84. And I was with Shannon until 85.
0: And... uh It's. I I mean, in some ways, it seems self evident. But I'll just ask the question: uh, How do you feel like having been so spending so much time on the road with like avant garde and jazz and stuff affected the return to hard rock?
1: Um, I think. I I think. I think. um, Spending so much time with the avant garde um, and 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 playing hard, playing rock and roll. You know, it was. it was a broadening experience. Um, I kind of held on to the things I liked, and it was so, so funny because um, a lot of the musicians, jazz musicians, I know were not were not that open-minded. You would think that people that spend their time improvising might be more open, but, but uh, a lot of the jazz musicians, some of them, I mean, a, a great many of them are, but it's just like any other endeavor. You know, you have your people that are open to outside things. And your people that are utterly closed. You know, they're jazz people. They are jazz people. And that is it. And That's the only music they're trying to hear, and they ain't trying to hear nothing else. And funk musicians are the same way. When when hip hop came in, a lot of the funk musicians were like, "That's garbage. They ain't going nowhere. It's da 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 da. This that and the other thing. It's novelty." Um, classical musicians. I mean, uh, I mean, it, I mean. In fact, when you when you have classical musicians that are open minded, it's like wow. You know, like a David Ambram, you know, or a Yehudi Menuhin, you know, who who spent time with Ravi Shankar, um, significant time with Ravi Shankar. Um, you know, then that's that's it's, it's extraordinary. But it's those people who are were open to other things. I mean, those are the people I gravitated to.
0: You you were in the uh, Nelson George's documentary Brooklyn Bohem, yeah, uh, which I I really enjoyed. Uh, I've, you know. I that that history uh, streaming now on Netflix. It was it was great. Um, the thing that was I felt implied in it but not acknowledged head on. And I was thinking about it again because uh, you know Spike Lee was sort of making the rounds in the news. People were sharing this thing about him talking about gentrification sure. in Brooklyn. Is uh, is that it, I I felt like the documentary didn't quite directly reckon with the fact that 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 the those artists uh were the vanguard of gentrification of Fort Greene yeah. and and then in turn gentrified themselves out you know what i mean
1: it's an ugly yeah. cycle it's an u- <laughs> it's, a, it's an ugly it's an ugly ugly cycle, because the artists and, uh, you know, the people, not just the artists, but the people who are kind of social misfits, social outcasts that the mainstream won't countenance and won't have. Those people make, you know, forge a new kind of community. So you have a situation like in Soho, nobody came care. Of, Soho was like old factories. Soho was de- a dead zone. If you talk to someone like James Bonhomer, you know, Soho was a place where interracial couples, jazz musicians, homosexuals, sculptors, you know. My
0: two dads.
1: You know, like that's, (laughs) right. It's like, it's the place where people who wouldn't this is a place where people didn't have didn't get messed with. The people that were on the outs, right? So you would have the transsexual, you'd have the vibraphonist, you'd have you know you'd have you know you'd have these people um, wind up congregating because they they because because the people that the rest of society didn't want to have look at. They needed a place to live, and they needed a safe area where they wouldn't be messed with and and so that's what happens in these neighborhoods. that's what happened in these neighborhoods and fort green was uh was was very much like that Fort green is when I was talking about in Brooklyn, brooklyn boeing you know um you know after dark um when I was in high school at Brooklyn Tech, you know that was the host stroll and that was the track that was the brooklyn track was 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 right around Fort
0: green Recently I watched after hours and which is set in Soho. And it's just a crazy... It's a great movie. After it's our, a great movie, and it's so weird to think that, you know, that it's such a moment in time of, like, and that neighborhood is so far gone. Oh, you know? oh
1: yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That 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 movie was, like, the last gasp of the Soho Weekly News version of Soho. Because that, that was the thing. Like, the Village Voice, the comp- competitor to the Village Voice was the Soho Weekly News. And... Uh, because Soho was its own considered its own area of avant-garde activity and gray area. When I was taking guitar lessons with with uh, Bruce Johnson uh, in, in in on Avenue D, I mean it was it was really scary. Go walking with my guitar to to Avenue D. It was like aware. Uh, 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 it was an Avenue aware. Uh, be, it was beware, caution, and death.
0: Right? <laughs> I, I've I've always had this idea of of uh wanting to do a sketch uh about a dare about Daredevil because like Daredevil said in Hell's Kitchen but Daredevil said in Hell's Kitchen as it is now oh. you know what I mean <laughs> so like with all of the small plates and the fancy lofts and all that kind of stuff and just Daredevil like walking around uh you know. Intervening and people abusing their waiter and stuff. Oh yeah, King King <laughs> King,
1: King Kingpin becomes a restaurant magnate. You know.
0: Yeah. Right. Um, so uh, the first time that I told you that I had a union background, sure. you uh, mentioned that your family has some connection to the early days of eleven ninety
1: nine. Yeah, my my mother my mother worked for the you know the health the health and hospital workers union eleven ninety nine.
0: She worked for the union.
1: She worked for the union. Well, she worked for a, a pharmaceutical distributor at first, and and then she worked directly for the union for a long time. She's retired
0: now. Uh, and what what was that? What, what was your experience of that history?
1: Well, you know, it was just a lot of eleven ninety nine literature around, and also my 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 father. Um, was was a member of patco the um the uh uh air traffic controllers union that that, that Reagan busted so he was he, he he was a uh a mail sorter i i totally forgot this my my father was an early computer programmer too like you know like i just had a recent conversation with him and i was reminded of remembered all the punch cards. Like, they were punch cards, stacks of punch cards in our apartment. So it's a, it's a crazy thing. And uh, I think there are some photographs of my, my dad with, like, uh, with um, one of the big IBM mainframes. But he was, um, you know, they were using computers, early computers, to sort mail. And, uh, and he was working with that. And then he basically tested into... Um air traffic control and he joined the union so so you know there was um and i actually
0: my f- and and what years are this
1: these are god, these are the sixties and seventies the sixties and seventies my mom was doing the pharmaceutical dis- distributor in the sixties, and she joined she started working for the union in the seventies as i recall
0: and and eleven eleven ninety nine started in New York right. Yes. And this was, I mean, my limited understanding of the history from afar is that—is that this was uh, one of the, now, like healthcare unions are really, you know, a pretty significant part of the labor movement, but this was, in the 60s and 70s, was the beginning of a real wave of unionization of healthcare workers. Yeah. And 1199 specifically was uh, a sort of New York-based healthcare, hospital healthcare Union that was sort of the union expression of the civil rights movement.
1: Oh, very, very much so. A lot of uh, a lot of uh, African American and Caribbean American nurses, a lot of nurses uh, and, and home care providers. You know, that was that was pretty much the backbone of 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 eleven ninety nine. And I actually, I actually worked. Uh, for a time at a uh, laboratory in Long Island City, uh, and I was I was I was a member of eleven ninety nine. You know, I was a member of eleven ninety nine before I was a member of eleven oh two, the musicians
0: union. And and the what what was your recollection of the of when Reagan busted up Patco?
1: It was pretty tense, you know. It was it was rough. It was rough. It was rough. It was a rough time because um, I've been, you know, because I, where I worked was at uh, this, this uh, centralized labs in Long Island City. And we had gone out on strike. We had gone out on strike a couple of times. I walked the ticket line, um, you know, because for, for, for wages, for benefits, for better work conditions, um, for, you know, just health and safety stuff, you know, because there was a part of the laboratory that, that had, uh, that was, that dealt with, um, radioactive stuff, um, uh, for chemotherapy. There was a part of the, of the lab that dealt with chemo, chemo results and things like that. So it was like, you know, making sure things were labeled and, you know, like, uh, so, so I'd I'd been on the picket line and and done some time uh, with eleven ninety nine, and then the Pacco thing.
0: Hang on did, did 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 you did you find being on the picket line to be fun or stressful?
1: Cold, cold a lot of times. Cold, and <laughs> we had to do it in shit. You know, because basically what with the picket line in tech, when we were on strike, basically we you had to come in to work at the time that you would work. And carry a sign, you know, or stand in front of the, you know what I mean, and and make sure that they weren't bringing scabs in, you know. So, yeah. so that was, so it was like, uh, you know, my it was it was weird because I was sort of um, halfway between a part time and a full time worker, so. Um, because there was a tension because I was also trying to make it as a musician and trying to, using vacation time to tour and all of this sort of stuff. And like, I, it would be like, you know, I would be in rehearsal and I had to run out of rehearsal to get to my job. You know what I mean? And, uh, so anyway, anyway, you mentioned my pack up thing. It was very tense time, but it was, it was, uh, you know, because, um, you know, it was like either you either you went with what Reagan was talking about, or you were out. You know, my pops decided to stay in, and and that was a, um, you know, I understand why he did it because he had a family and um, he had three kids, and you know, I get it. And but of course, my also sort of ideologically pure teenage mind was a little judgy about that and and I and I came to think you know what it's not fair because you know he's just trying to do the best for the for the reeds you know and that's what he decided to do and, and and I know that was a rough one for it was a rough time for him. I didn't like get into confrontational stuff with, with him because you know I didn't do that but um it it I know it was a rough rough thing for him.
0: And do you think, like, uh, you know, my my pers- my approach to union work and to social change in general is that, like, I never actually care that much about winning the particular improvement or campaign. I really care about what lessons people learn from the experience. Sure. And you know, it's okay. Like, it's okay with me to lose a big fight if people learn. Oh, this is how we need to do it better next time. Right. Uh, and. Uh, so do do you think your family came out of that feeling like, you know, all the work we did put into being part of these unions wasn't worth it or, uh, or Reagan was horrible or what, what do you think the lessons of uh, the, you know, for your parents that, from that participation?
1: Well, I've, I'm a, I'm, I'm a, you know, I believe I'm a, I'm because I, I, I was been in a couple of unions. I, I was in a union that struck twice and I've been on the picket line and seen the results of union busting in my own family. I mean, on one level, you know, uh, um, I, I'm very thankful that my father stayed in. Because what happened was when they busted the union, you know, the thing is, like, the work rules were insane. For those guys who were pushing 10, it was rough, rough, rough. They, they worked really long hours to the point of exhaustion. They had to stay alert all the time. And... The fact that my dad, who's an experienced air traffic controller, stayed in the mix was a good thing because Reagan was willing to risk the lives of (laughs) thousands of people. And those experienced uh, air traffic controllers that stayed in the mix um, and didn't break out, you know, my dad's a hero. You know, to, to me, you know, the, you know, he helped keep the skies safer because he stayed in, and and that's my point of view about it. And I, I think that it, I think that uh, uh, Reagan did a, a horrible thing, and, and and breaking Paco was one of those test cases for union breaking because uh, it it set the tone for what was going to follow, um, so. That's part of that's that I I have very uh, very deeply antagonistic feelings about Reagan's legacy because of that because of the uh, what went on um, in inside of the Reed family. But the fact that my dad, you know, helped make planes land safely, you know, he was a good dude. He was good at his job, and uh, you know, I applaud him. For, you know, helping, you know, because I am I know that he gave pointers and tips and, and helped out with these, these dudes that got thrown into, you know, they got thrown in, you know, the dudes that got those jobs. I mean, they got thrown into the deep water. It's no joke to have 500 planes in the air that you have to direct and hand off to different towers. This is no joke to keep all of the heights of the planes and the flight pattern straight. It's no joke. It's not for the faint of heart. And I'm sure that my, my dad helped more than a few dudes avoid a nervous breakdown.
0: Yeah. Uh, uh, Bobcat Goldthwaite had this comedy album in the 80s called Meet Bob. And he has a bit about, about Patco, where he, he talks about, uh, you know, in the news, you keep hearing about all these near-miss airplane crashes. Why all these near-miss airplane crashes? Maybe it's because Reagan fired everybody who knew how to do the job. And then they were like, uh, hey, man. Do you know how to play Space Invaders? Come on over here, you know? Oh, my God.
1: It's like, you know, but the near misses, my dad told a story about a, a controller who was on the job um, that he knew that um, that essentially avoided, he, he taught, this is like a, a, a legendary story among air traffic controllers, that there, there was an Argentine airline that would have crashed into the World Trade Center years before, because of uh, because there was a foggy night. The pilot got confused with his instruments, and he was much too low on his approach. and a, And an air traffic controller happened to say and told this guy to climb a thousand feet immediately, and he was on line to hit one of the towers, really by accident. And and uh, because, you know, these guys are always watching the screens and always aware. They, they have a kind of supernatural awareness of where the planes are after a while. And I remember my pops telling my story. It was, you know. So those those dudes that, that stayed on, I mean, helped a lot.
0: Yeah. Um, now, you, uh, sh- shifting gears a little bit, you, I know, have uh, given a lot of thought to the Parallels between making music and doing comedy?
1: Absolutely. What are you, What are your thoughts on that? Well, you know, um, well, one thing that's interesting is that there's so many comedians who are also excellent musicians. there's so many comedians and actors, comedic actors, who are, uh, are are players of one type or another. You know, uh, you know, I know Mark Madden plays guitar. You know, there are a number of drummers. Um, uh, in reality, Steve Martin is real. Is It's funny. Steve Martin is actually one of the great, great bluegrass musicians this country has ever produced. He's a mofo on the banjo. And in a weird way, it's hard to look. at It's like, okay, what's your real gig? Like, are you a comedian? Because you wanted to avoid the life of a musician. You know what I mean? Because really, he's, he's an incredible banjo player and he's incorporated it in his comedy but uh, he does that thing that Charo does you know when Charo plays the guitar picked up the guitar you know on Hollywood squares whenever she would pick up the guitar uh, she would transform. She was very, very, very serious about flamenco guitar. And she's a wonderful flamenco guitarist. And with all that, all of the silliness and whatnot, whenever the, she would sit down to play guitar, she would become a, a deadly serious musician. Um, the, the Marx Brothers, you know what I mean? Um, Harpo and Chico, I mean, incredible. Incre- Chico and Marx, incredible pianist. You know, um, Harpo Marx. Man, I, don't, I mean, he was extraordinary as a harpist. So there's this thing about music and comedy that is that is very uh, related, and, um, and we I think there's something about comedy and music that puts you uh, in an observational place with life. You really do observe the foibles and, and follies of life as people do it. And you just have a particular vantage point from which to view those follies and foibles and also to examine your own follies and foibles. You know, a lot of, a lot of uh, what happens in music and comedy, I mean, it's a, it's a solitary pursuit. You know, the comedian has to use his mind, his body, his everything, right? his physiology, right? And, and put the, all of those in the service of, transforming, of, of rewiring people's brains in an instant. Uh, the musician has to, you know, it, the guitar's not going to play itself. The drum's not going to drum itself. You, you have to do a lot of very boring things to, to be at your best. There are things to do that are unavoidable. There's a lot of repetition. There's a lot of, uh, it, it can be stultifyingly dull. To get to those exciting moments of improvisation or interpretation is a lot of drudgery. In order to get to to be at to be at a certain level, and if you're thinking of it competitively, it's really important to have to to to, to engage those things. So, I think that there are very very powerful um, connections between. And you know, it's it's no accident that a lot of musicians that there are a lot of comedians who are, are musicians or were musicians or love music or relate to music, and a lot of musicians. Are are incredibly funny people, very funny people. Um, you know Steve Vai, very you know the, you know, the master guitar player. Steve Vai is a very funny dude. I spent a lot of time on tour buses with him doing the Experience Music Project, and he's got a he's got a wicked wit. And uh, you know it's it's uh, I don't know, man, to 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 kind of pull out. To, we both deal with the extremes of emotions. You know, there's a great deal of pathos and sadness that's a part of every comedian, and and pathos and sadness is part is necessarily a part of every musician's life. So I think the parallels are, are very very strong.
0: Occasionally, I get asked to do these like private gigs or whatever, and I I tend to quote a pretty big number uh, a lot of times. Sometimes I do, sometimes it don't. Depends on the thing. But a a uh, a lot of times when I'm asked to do a private show, uh, uh, I'll be like, what you're paying for is not the show, but what I did to be able to do the show. You know what I mean? Right. right. Like the fact that, that, uh, that I put the work in to be able to do the thing that you're asking me to do is really what you're paying for.
1: <laughs> oh, absolutely. And a lot of it is, I mean, to create, I mean, a lot of it is, there's a lot of silence. We have to deal with a lot of silence. We have to dig the thing up. Like if, the funny idea you know what i mean the thing the thing in stand up comedy is that there's a structure to it there's a whole thing there's there's a structure to a set there's a whole thing about laying 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 something down and then going back re- tagging back and you know what i mean like things have to develop and there's an art to it and the thing about watching a musician I, you know what? I was I, I I I consider turntablist musicians, and I and I was uh, watching on Twitter, and somebody posted a tweet of Jazzy Jeff, and Jazzy Jeff DJ Jazzy Jeff, who uh, who worked with Will Smith, aka the Fresh Prince, right? So the thing about Jazzy Jeff is that he's like one of the first turntableists. I, I I I tweeted, I retweeted, and said. Uh, Jazzy J, DJ Jazzy Jeff is the Jimi Hendrix of turntablism. And what I mean by that is that there are other DJs that do fancy stuff with the turntables, right? But Jazzy Jeff was one of the first dudes I saw at the turntables who made it look completely natural. He would do this extraordinary breakdowns and and, and cut-ups of music. But the beat was, the, the groove, he's like a party DJ uh, who was also this extraordinary manipulator of turntables. And he's he really is, like the whole thing that you have with the executioners and all these other extreme turntablism, it really a lot of it starts with Jazzy Jeff. And he's remarkable. And to make it look Like, it's just a walk in the park. That's another, that's, that's, that's another level of it. When you see a comedian, and you know the structures of things, right? When you're just laughing, you see it, and you're just laughing your ass off. And you're not thinking about, oh, he did this, or he did that. You're just going with what he did. What he or she is doing. That's a remarkable thing. That's a remarkable thing.
0: Uh, the first time I saw just as one example of this when I saw Eddie Izzard uh, I, I got a hold of the Dress to Kill DVD somebody gave it to me uh that was filmed in San Francisco and I watched it and I was like I don't understand what's happening like I don't understand why what he's doing or how it's working or and I probably watched it 15 or 20 times until I felt like I got what the sort of the scaffolding was behind that act
1: it's an, it's a, I think it's incredible one of the things I love about stand up comedy is that Stand-up comedy is anything someone's got the guts to do. It really is. Some of it, I mean, there's a great tradition of jokes and one-liners. But stand-up comedy doesn't have to be that at all. Stand-up comedy can be a person just telling a story about what happened that day. Stand-up comedy, a lot of times stand-up comedy... I mean, there are people that just do crowd work. Like all they do is they get up and start talking about people and pitting people against each other. And 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 if you can make it work, I mean that's the whole thing about having a voice. If you can make it work, then that's you. It's the same thing with playing guitar. It is a lot of it's relatable to guitar because you don't have to you don't have to tap on the neck. I mean, people get caught up in vogues, right? Just the same thing. Comedy, same thing. People get caught up in the vogues and they chase after this and they chase after that. But in reality, it's you and your voice. You, the thing that you're trying to avoid about yourself. You're an angry person. You're a sarcastic person. You're da, da, da. Those, those are your tools. Those are your, those. That's your thing, right? And you right. have, and you have to actually dive into the thing you don't like. The thing that, that you, you know, the thing that you don't like, that's you. And that's the thing, the thing that you're trying to fix, that's your shit. And you're not, and, and you literally have to take that thing, that's you, and you have to go further in. You have to go further and deeper in.
0: With comedy and with music.
1: With comedy and with music. Absolutely. I think I think you can get caught up in the greatness of the other. Like the other person, this person has got this and they got that, dah, 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 the things that they do and the things that they have. You get caught up in, in what other people are doing. It's very easy. We're social creatures. That's what we do. The funny thing is they have that thing that they have by accident or design because of the fact that they're expressing the thing that they're doing, right? And the only way for anyone that's in this kind of milieu of performance to do the thing that they're doing, you have to bring what you have to the table. You can't bring what the next person's got to the table. It's ridiculous.
0: Yeah. They, they, did you see that documentary about Bill Hicks that's on Netflix? Uh, there's this great – my favorite moment in the documentary is when, when Bill's best friend, Dwight Slade, who's a comic now in Portland, uh, says people think that Bill Hicks was a great comic because he sounded like Bill Hicks, but that's not it. Bill was a great comic because his inner voice and his outer voice were the same.
1: I I couldn't agree with it more. I couldn't agree with it. Billie Holiday was great to the very end. Billie Holiday was great in her greatest times when she was young and beautiful and the whole world was her oyster. And she was great when she was a broken woman. She was still great because she lived her sound. That broken thing coming out of her throat, she paid for it with every injection, with every bad man, With everything that went sideways, she paid in coin to make that sound. Most people aren't willing to pay in coin. The coin you're going to pay in is people not digging you. People telling you you ain't shit. People, people nasty YouTube comments. People telling you ain't funny. The heckler, the people with with the arms folded in front of the stage. That's the coin you have to pay. That's what you have to pay. And most people are not willing to pay the cross to be free. To pay the cost to be free, it really is. That's you with the rifle in your hand. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's you. That's you. That's you in the first launches that landed on D-Day. That, that really is. It really is. It's not the. It's not that when people say, "Yeah, man, you're the best." No. Some people say, "You're the fucking worst," and I, I wait. You're a waste of space and time. When or when you get the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune thrown in your grill, that's the cost of the ticket. That's the price of the ticket. That's what that's what Baldwin was talking about. When James Baldwin was talking about the price of the ticket, that's exactly what he's talking about. And nine out of ten of us are not willing to pay. We're willing to give up, we're going to shift our shit, we're going to turn around, we're going to walk away. And that's the and you and we walk away almost always at the point of breakthrough. People walk away right at the point when they're about to experience another thing, get to another place. It's 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 sad. It's really sad, but it's really it, it is what it is. And those of us that stay in 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80 years in this mix, right? With the good, the bad and the ugly that happens and really hold and maintain and keep di- diving deeper to who we actually are. What we have to share. What we have to share is is all of us. The best, the worst, the mistakes, the shit that's cool the unfunny things. That's all part of it. That's all yeah.
0: part of it. My, my, you know, my wife says this stuff to me all the time about how like, you know, cause I, I tend towards the depressive, like a lot of comedians and I brood and wallow and stuff. And, and she always said, you know, that it's sort of, that I'm so quick to go to like a very, uh, discouraged, dark place. Right. And she, and that, but that I'm actually at my best when I'm, when I am cornered and mad, you know what I mean? Right. Um and you know, and and am like ready to fight my way out of it rather than right. wallowing. Uh have you seen the new Captain America movie?
1: I have. I have.
0: How do you feel about it?
1: I I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it. Uh it's a it's a very interesting well, Chris Evans Steve Rogers is his interpretation of Steve Rogers is very interesting because Captain America as portrayed he is essentially bruce springsteen right he's an every man he's an every guy right he's an every guy and he doesn't like bullies he's the, the, the he's the kid that was bullied that suddenly becomes you know a starker right he suddenly becomes uh, and and he uses his powers for good as he sees it
0: i appreciate your use of yiddish there
1: uh, yeah well you know i try to i try to help <laughs> so so he's this cat right and what they did what i loved about because how do you in the, the post dark night world that we live in how do you constitute a character like captain america and the way marvel did it was that they basically stole a playbook. There was a movie a few years ago called The Flags of Our Fathers, which is about right. the, the Iwo Jima photograph. It was about the about about the reality of the lives of the soldiers that took the Iwo Jima photograph. And they re they did this thing where they did, went on tour and they had to recreate the the the, the, the Iwo Jima photograph on stage. They he had to stand and pose with this flag. You know, and it was about the dark reality of what they lived. And basically, in the, what they did with Captain America is that Captain America, his whole thing was that he was, he was a prop for selling U.S. war bonds. It's brilliant to take him and make him in the costume or whatnot that he was not only this sort of uh, medical experiment, but he was a prop. For selling war bonds, it was genius. It made him somewhat credible that he would dress the way he's dressing. And so, you know, he's this whole thing about him being a member of Shield, and and the 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 use of uh, bringing in uh, Hydra, which is kind of Hydra is like this, uh, you know, the idea that the that 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 the Nazis had a super secret. uh, had their DARPA like the Red Skull what I, is a result of taking the Warner von Braun trope and then folding that into they had their extreme scientific advanced technology division.
0: Right. It was the it was the Marvel version of the thing that was that that they were riffing on in Hellboy too.
1: And exactly. Right. And and the Raiders of the Lost Ark. Right. Because there's a one on the one hand there's the idea of the, of the Nazis as being arcane occultists, of them being occultists. And on the other hand, it was the Nazis as, you know, the, the not Mengele Frankenstein, right? So, you know, in, in, in a way, Red Skull is the Mengele Frankenstein idea, uh, you know, a uh, caricature or the extreme uh, expression of that idea and so hydra has become this quasi uh you know is uh industrial espionage unit um uh, that's that's more in line with the red sc- like kind of like the red skull and i uh, forget the scientist who
0: the who was played by uh what's his name toby uh the 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 the, the dude who played capote
1: yes Yes. Right. And so the idea that uh that Bucky uh, that Bucky was uh, uh, have become their experiment, not only in increasing his strength, but in mind control. You know, could we turn the soldier against his own and what have you? It's pretty it's pretty interesting. I I, I just think it's funny that um like there's, a, there's an Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. TV show and how does that fold into, because S.H.I.E.L.D., I mean, it's weird, because at the end of the movie, S.H.I.E.L.D. kind of still exists, but uh, Nick Fury is going completely underground. Like he's sort of like, I'm dead. And it's it's a, it's a little, I'm just wondering where, I'm actually intrigued with where it all goes. Because it's, you know, because S.H.I.E.L.D. was infiltrated by HYDRA. And, you know, you have this, this whole scenario of HYDRA double agents and S.H.I.E.L.D. agents fighting it out. It was it was pretty crazy.
0: You know, people, uh, I like, I went to see it by myself last weekend. And uh, people are like, why are you so excited to see this Captain America movie? And I just feel like I'm so sick of the, of the the fad of the amoral male anti-hero as the right. c- cinematic, like fucking Tony Soprano and Walter White and Don Draper. And, uh, you know, there are all these, uh, just all these stories and movies and TV shows that are supposed to be serious art about horrible men. And, right. Right. there's, you know, uh, uh, my sentimentality is touched by Steve Rogers and his virtue. Yeah,
1: yeah, um, yeah. yeah it's also, yeah, it's a, I, 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 I'm with you. I'm totally with you with that and uh, and uh you know the fact that you know that, you know this this idea that when he visits um um his his love that he never consummated you know in the in the nursing home, you know it's really poignant at the end of Captain America, the very end of captain america was 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 perfect when he says, you know, I had a date." I missed, you know, he, I had, I had someone I had to meet and that just was it. He paid the, like he is someone who's paid the cost in loneliness. You know, he's a man out of time and it's, it's, uh, really interesting. I, I actually really, uh, enjoyed Scarlett Johansson. You mm-hmm. know, I, I think she's, she's, she's kind of become the nerd, nerd boy, it girl. You know what I mean?
0: Right. Yeah, I thought she was was good. I did feel like uh, Robert Redford felt like he was phoning it in a bit to me. Uh, I mean, it's the same way as like, I felt the same way about Robert Redford in the new Captain America as I felt about Harrison Ford in Ender's game, where they just both looked exhausted to be delivering their lines.
1: (laughs) (laughs) yeah (laughs) like am i still
0: doing this you know
1: (laughs) well well, the funny thing is you know after after doing all is lost i would imagine that robert redford would be pretty exhausted
0: yeah right okay well uh have a great show tonight thank you enjoy minneapolis thanks a lot Uh, and i'll see you soon
1: NATO. this was a great man it's a long time in coming uh and i hope to see you again soon bro
0: i'm always happy to talk to you always always take care man peace that was Vernon Reed on the NATO Sessions uh, production of 3200 Stories, the digital venue of the San Francisco Jewish Community Center. Please uh, like us and share us and review us and rate us on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. Uh, you Go to 3200stories.org for more episodes as they become available. This was produced by Dan Wolf, edited by Steve Bissinger, theme music by T.J. Reel. Uh, follow me on Twitter at NATO Green. Thanks a lot, everybody. We'll see you next time. We'll yeah. be yeah.